straight up on this program for um, unless unless there's anything specific, especially for Africa. A lot of turmoil on that. Any phrases? It's wonderful to see you all here. Uh, humbled to think that uh, you know we go along and you know see a lot of the troubles that are going on in other people's lives in the world or in our government. Hopefully everyone is doing real good and it's peaceful. It's a good county to find peace in. So we're thankful for that. I talked to a guy at Lowe's the other night. Thought I knew him forever. He's from up by Star. Uh, and I must have spent half an hour just talking to him about life, about what he did and what I did. And he's so happy to be a Christian. Just sat there and talked. Not, nothing else was happening. He's just the nicest guy. And I forget his name. Do you remember him? Henson. Henson? I don't know his first name, but Henson. I'm a five star. So they're people who came to the spirits, and that's the phrase. I'm going to write that down. Missing even electrical lines. 
crossovers, many before everything. But that occurs. So we're thankful for that. Thank you for answering our prayers in many ways. Thankful for Jason and Say. Many things can strand us, so we rely on our cars. Thank you for having Christians in our lives. Sometimes you put them there just to reassure us, to give us encouragement, and bring us along in our walk as well. So we just thank you for all these things. And so we mentioned the unspoken things in the world where there's wars we can ask. It says, you have not because you ask not. So we ask for a peaceful resolution in Ukraine. We ask for so many of the Christians that seemingly can be displaced in Africa that we watch over them each and every morning and give them your safety in that Lord. Thank you now for these scriptures. As we open up Romans 6, we ask you to give us an understanding of its meaning and that to bring us along in these early Christian times these writings from its author to uh, their audience or to the people that they wrote to the Lord and then bring it home to us in our hearts so that we may understand and live it out in this day. The word never changes. So we thank you for that. We thank you for all these things. We trust our Lord and Savior. Amen. I think what I will do, this is Romans 6, so I'll open it up with uh, a little bit of part of the uh, chapter, and, uh, and then I'll back up to chapter 5, just a touch. Um, there's two parts to chapter 6. I'll give a little bit of an overview since it's a new chapter. Chapter 6 is dead to sin and life in Christ in the first part. And so this is a part that probably goes through verse 14 that if you were looking at the whole chapter, I mean the holy living, it kind of reminds us of the sin. But he's not dwelling on that. He is he's concentrating on a new life. He's concentrating on living now in what Christ has provided. And it's sort of coming out of the last part of chapter 5 and the beginning part of, of 6. And then it goes into some, some I call them rhetorical words Paul uses. He uses a few words as illusions or as metaphors or as well understood words in their day. One of those words is slaves. And you wouldn't really talk that way today. But back then, everybody understood that word. And so he pulls together the first part, actually six, seven, and eight are the living uh, out your Christian lives. So how do you do that? What happens to live out your Christian walk? And so I'll read the first part of it here, maybe the first few verses, and we'll come back and, and I'll back up into five. And so in chapter six, I'm reading out of the NIV. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with Him 
like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Do you notice how many diametrically opposed wordings are here? <laughs> An incredible amount. Shall we sin? The grace may increase. And that was stated in the last, the, the, the last part of the other chapter. Heaven forbid is another way they put that. We were baptized with Christ. Christ, we were baptized into his death that occurred over 1900 years ago. What does he mean? These questions should come up in our minds automatically, but what a wonderful thing here when, when you begin to understand this. You, you know what these things mean because you have the sense of a spiritual mind. It, it would sound very foreign to an unbeliever. But to us, we sort of really understand that and would be tongue-tied, including me, first of all, in explaining what that meant. You know, a very uh, within the baptism. Buried in the death, alive in the baptism. Buried in baptism is two words that... So you ask the question. So, listen to the present, the past, and the future in some of this. And we'll come back and cover this more after. For we've been united with him, that's past, because it's at the point of his resurrection that we are capable of being united with him. We were united him. Uh, our self was crucified with him. Crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. So we're dead, but we're alive. We're here presently. And now the resurrection is the future. So you see how all of this can be confusing to the non-believer. How do you explain this to someone off the street that has asked the question, why would I want to be a Christian? Why would I want to follow Jesus? What is going on? Paul had the same problem. Paul had a problem with getting the Hebrew thinking into the Greek writing in Rome, not Jerusalem, in Rome. So you see what's going on here? It sounds a little foreign, but he knows exactly what they're thinking. Paul was a rock star. Paul was well understood by the people of his day. His vernacular was right there with him. If he was talking, he would, they would want to put him in office if he was telling the right things. But he wasn't telling the right things. They all knew there were gods. There were gods all over the place. They were ready. Caesar Augustus was the son of God. Called himself God. Little G God, please. Don't think that I'm calling him the son of God. I'm not. But he did. He called himself that. And so in this time period, everybody knew who the Son of God was. And now Paul had explained who the real Son of God really was. They all knew how to get to heaven. But their idea was to go around all these gods that were in the way. It's called Gnosticism. It's called Marcionism. It's called a number of things. And so when they began to contaminate, is the best word I have for it, these scriptures, 
this doctrine, they had a hard time and they had an easy time. The people were right with all of this counterfeit information, all this antichrist stuff was sitting right there in the Greek. The Stoic philosophy of the day, you see, it said, at just the right time, when the Pax Romana was there, the peace of the world was going on. The peace of the entire world of Rome. And Rome was the center of all of the known world's power. There was peace. There was a war. Caesar Augustus had gotten them to a point of peace. So now Paul is speaking into this world. So I'm setting the stage for when he begins to talk about holy living. And it isn't to the gods most of them believe in. But he's not talking to the people that were unbelievers. He may be writing to them in this word. He's talking to the church of Rome. So the question becomes, if he's talking to the church of Rome, what is he saying? Amen. That's what our charge is when we begin to open up chapter 6. What is he really saying in these few words? I give a little historical viewpoint because it's there. Not just it's not just there for uh, the unbelieving world. But the Roman church is sitting right in the middle of it. This is in Rome. This isn't in Jerusalem. And so Romans 6 raises the question that if sin abounds, shall we who believe keep sinning so that grace may increase all the more? The answer in most of this is emphatically no, heaven forbid, and absolutely never. They're good interpretations for what he's really saying. They're emphatic. They mean it. Since, no, since sin is dead to those who believe in Christ, we've got to stop there for a minute. What does that mean? The business of living godly lives begins and the fruit, the fruit of the living of that godly life life is to be produced. But first of all, sin isn't dead. What is he saying? He's saying Christ has conquered death. Christ has conquered sin. And as you remember, the first several chapters, we were all dead to sin. We were all not capable of crucifying ourselves with the hammer. You got one nail in how are you going to make the other one work? It's not up to you, obviously. This is a poor example, but I did read it. You can't crucify yourself. And you can't crucify Christ all over because it says He's already done this once. He has conquered death. He will not die anymore. He's not going to be crucified again. And you shouldn't crucify Him again either many times, not guilty, where I want to go back and say, let me start over. Give, give me a do-over. I messed up. I want to, you know, but 1,900 years ago, he died for us. 1,900 years he did the job. That far back, he conquered it. So now this story becomes alive. Since sin is dead, in those who believe in Christ is the key. Sin isn't dead in our lives. It's dead in those who believe in Christ. It's in Him that, that our sin has been pardoned. And so we can go on and begin to produce fruit. This is a one-time death for us too that is not repeated again well, salvation through Christ cannot be back up. So one time death. 
died of sin. That's because Christ brought us salvation. So through Christ cannot be lost. It can't be lost. One time that He did it for us can't be repeated. That's another example where you cannot lose. He holds that person, that power, not the person. The person doesn't hold the power. Christ holds that power. In order for it to be accomplished through a perfect human being who did a perfect obedience to the law, we count on that. God is perfectly righteous. And He is pardoned. We go back to the same statement same statement, 5.8. God demonstrates His love to us in this. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't put Him on the cross. And so Paul, who's living in Rome, knows these slave relationships all too well. And so this one resonated with the people. The slave is obedient the master. So he uses the slavery illusion, the slavery metaphor. We are slaves to Christ in a sense. Okay. It doesn't start that way immediately. You were baptized into his death 1900 years ago when that happened. When we have the faith, our sins taken care of 1900 years over 1900 years. So now, this godly, obedient living for the church, for the church, at the church of Rome, this was a message that was in vogue or contemporary with the people from Paul's words. They would have understood this historical uh, at this historical time, as people would have known the gospel no longer is Judaism. It's not centered even in Jerusalem at this point. It's no longer coming from Judaism, but it hasn't left Judaism either. It's nested in the prophecies that came out of the Old Testament. It is astounding how those were perfectly fulfilled in this time. And then it goes to a point where now we're in the capital of the world. So what's happening here? Paul essentially is rolling out evangelism. This is the early Christian. What's going to happen? I go back to some history now for just a moment because the history kind of tells the story. What's happening today? Same thing. Back then, they had bishops. The word bishop was an overseer for a given church. So they left the synagogue, right? They left the temple. The, the temples been destroyed by 70 AD, but not, not yet in Paul's letter. Some of the Jewish people would still be looking to the temple, but churches were basilicas. They began to make these little places that would take care of the business, the ecclesiastical business of the church. And these bishops were overseers. Well, these bishops were kind of like Paul. They would take care of the, the writings. They would write to some of the New Testament writings. And they would put together a formidable defense for the gospel. So back a little history here. Boom. Apostles all went out. Mark went to Alexandria, which is Greece. 
which is Greek. It's out in Africa, right? But that was part of the known Roman world. They were in charge of that place. Mark went there. The only one that really went outside was Thomas. He went to India and went to Afghanistan. But Peter and Paul, the leadership of this movement, of this main force, and a bunch of the others, went right to the epicenter of Rome. Would you do that? Would you go to the right into the nest of vipers that had the power? They had the power. So did Paul. So did Peter. And they wrote letters. And so when they wrote these letters, these letters were largely in defense of the gospel. Largely in defense of the doctrinal thing. Largely in protecting the gospel message. That's what these writings were. To hold the truth and grace of what is happening. And Christ has turned everything upside down. And so they're fighting the Marcionites, the people who want to say Christ was just an apparition. They're fighting the people who want to say Christ was just a human. They can't make their mind up, but there's multitudes of different religions coming in because somebody knows, and most of them know, that a guy came out of the grave alive and they've got to have answers for it. They were not eyewitnesses. These writers were eyewitnesses. These were eyewitness people, and so they're writing to the New Testament to the fact correct and establish the truth, truth of early Christianity. They were taking no prisoners. They were dying for the, for the cause. They put their life on the line. As Gary Abernath said, that's one of the strongest evidences for the truth of the gospel. That they went to their death believing the eyewitness accounts that they were proposing and espousing, I should say. They were saying, hey, this happened. I was there. 300 years later, what happened? One of these guys, Constantine, became the bishop. Essentially, become the bishop position might have changed the name. And Rome become fully Christian. Three, four hundred years later, in the first first period of time. And he did it probably for ulterior moments of his own. You know, he he wasn't perfect. He can tear that part pretty good. But the point is, all of Rome is considered in taking the position of Christianity. It took 300 years. So, Paul, in the writing of the Roman church, now kind of goes into, from this historical position, again, the possible manner, meaning the peace of Rome, the Greek language, uh, of logic, this was a time period of reasoning. We don't often think of it, but the reasoning of Christianity is a reasonable understanding. There's not multitudes of gods that are running around loose. There's one God who made it all, who's above it. And they're all subscribing to it. Although some of them are thinking how it works a little different than they should, this was the fight that Paul and many others were trying to hold on to the gospel message. You heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, give your coat to your enemies. Love your enemies. Jesus, again, has turned everything upside down. You know, these people are not afraid. They're giving their lives. Because they know there's eternal life at the end of the 
at the end of their life. So that's a little bit of the historical context, a little bit of the literary context, is again, uh, Paul talks about death and dead figuratively, not uh, you know, he, he's a little bit more cloaked in its meaning. Dying with Christ, we weren't there. And he also uses the, the slavery. Um, this, here's one statement I kind of wanted to make sure I got out. Um, the Romans stresses a bondage to a human master together with a concept of slave liberation. So Paul is taking this. The slaves were liberated back then. And he's using it to illustrate this all too familiar audience and the idea of the believer's possession in the service to God. We are slaves to sin, but we've been liberated, and now we are slaves once again to Christ. So everybody is a slave to one master or another. So everybody was, in a sense, a slave for one time in their life to sin or to death. Death was the ultimate result in that. And now they've moved over, but they stayed a slave. Do you know the Christian audience back then was largely slaves and impoverished people? Fine line. Most of them were slaves. And they had a master, and they had to stay right there. And now their master is Christ. This was so appealing to those slaves. There's a wide open explosion of interest in being a Christian and knowing what's at the end of the, the, their life. And so the gospel message here for these Gentiles and for this church at Rome, which is going to be explaining this gospel message to the people in Rome, to the Gentile world, they have no clue on what's going on. They're going to have to be explained. So Paul talks about these metaphors back and forth, and he kind of brings in the uh, resurrection as a future plan. That has already happened. So we die to sin. We die with Christ. We are buried. Now we are baptized. Is this a new form of baptism? No. We are baptized into the death of Christ. And then we are resurrected to a new life. And so all this is being rolled out to the slavery constituents of their church. And they're beginning to see that dead to sin. First of all, that they're dead to sin. It doesn't mean they don't sin. But the consequences of sin, and it's it starts in chapter 6 to remind us uh, of the place where it all started in the courtroom. Now dead, and the consequences of it are gone. The power of sin from the declaration of being free of the penalty must rejoice and realize that we are free from the power of sin. Not from the fact that we may sin, but from the power of sin. The power of sin over us 
in a life or death situation is gone. And so essentially, sinful men killed Jesus proclaiming to be the obedient son of God. This is so upside down. So, you've got one righteous guy that came to earth. He claimed to be the son of God and he killed him for that. The whole rest of them are sinful. So sinful man put to death Words of power in that. It's there. It's just so hard to explain it to a guy that does not believe that. How do you explain that? It's not a starting point, by the way. <laughs> Don't start there. Tell them about living in heaven. Some of that stuff, I guess. You know, you you'll know what to tell. And so Paul is trying to paint a correct picture for his audience and establish proofs. These are the doctrines. He's he's literally spilling out doctrines as he writes this letter. Paul again is fighting to maintain the absolute truth of the gospel message. Fighting with illusions, with metaphors, and using Old Testament prophecies to correct or to concretely seal these doctrines in. So this is what the early church, Ignatius, and many of the people write to and take. They're piecing together the canon, you know, the canonization of the New Testament as we know it never really the canonization of the Old Testament. It was kind of just there. But the New Testament was puzzled together and the word canonization never came up until probably 300 or somewhere in there. It wasn't there during the time it was formed. But the I think it's 27 books the writings were largely again letters from the apostles to the church defending these doctrines. There's so much in here. You kind of have to stop and back up a minute. Nobody can read during this time. Especially the slaves. I mean, some of the slaves were educated. That's true. No one could read. So what do you think happened? They had to read these letters to their church folks. But that wasn't it at all. Long before these letters were written down, long before a little other piece of history comes up, it was called the Christian Creed, the Apostles' Creed. These were statements. I like to read the Apostles' Creed. Just to read it. This came up long before these letters were sent out. And these folks would have memorized and it says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, that dead and buried. The third day He arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father. Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. It's not the Catholic Church, by the way. It's the, the one and only church is what it means. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. They knew that before they read the letter from Rome, from Rome 6 to see and understand the deep theology of it. They were learning about Jesus Christ as a way to heaven. 
that there was one and only one God, not multiple gods. This was a paradigm shift in their heads. They they were used to all kinds of different belief systems, and they didn't know what to pick, which God. There was a demiurge, and I could go into Sophia and all these other things, but it doesn't make any sense. But when they heard one and only one God, by the way, the Son of God, who gave His life because of God's mercy, because of God's love, this Son gave His life. And now, if you believe in Him, you can have everlasting life. It's appealing to these people. Where are the people today? Where are they today? Where was I back then, too? You know, I mean, I know where I was, so I think I can understand them a whole lot better because I know where I was. So, when you think about it, there's other creeds. Paul writes one of these creeds down, and you know it very well. 1 Corinthians 15. For what I receive, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, through no some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. This was an early Christian creed. Paul said within so many years, he did a fellowship handshake with them and what he has was already saying it made no difference in what they were saying. They all were telling the same gospel message. Here's a creed right out written, documented right in 1 Corinthians 15. For early Christian creed. So the creeds were very powerful. And then the Old Testament, you know, they didn't throw it away. It only Emphasize, but you didn't have to know all of the Hebrew or the Septuagint. Now it's in Greek. This is Septuagint. You didn't have to know the Greek Old Testament to understand some of the information in the letters. So the apologetics, the doctrines, and all of the stuff that we have today, and we look look at them and say, "Wow, where were they? Why didn't they know this?" They may have only had one little piece. The Apostles' Creed. They may only have this one piece of the New Testament to read and to believe and to memorize. A lot of them memorize this stuff. So we say, what's happening today? I'd be amiss if I didn't tell you what they did in China with the Bible and tore it in pieces and passed it around and shared it. One little page at a time. The, the Holy Bible was collectively in the hands of thousands of people, but they shared. They only could hide one little part of it at a time. And they shut down China, and they couldn't go in and out of it. You get that history a lot, but when they opened it up, all of the theologians and all of the church people were sitting here ready to rush in and find out if there were any Christians. There were millions of Christians in China when they were thinking there were zero. And God knows how to do this stuff. All too good. There's a section in verse 4, and I think that's about as far as I've got tonight, and I'll just kind of break it open and we'll stop there. In this verse 4, the beginning of verse 4, the words death, burial, and resurrection are all associated with baptism in a way that identifies believers with Christ, 
then we were going to say in Christ, and now it says with Christ, and its formula is 4, 5, 6, and 8. Continues on. Paul is not instructing Christians on baptism here. He's not trying to tell you how to be baptized. But rather drawing an illusion to their break from sin and death by virtue of union with Christ. In baptism, we are joining with Christ. It's a symbolic gesture. But he's not talking about the act of baptism in this verse 4. He's talking about we are baptized into his death. 1900 years ago. Or literally, he's making a metaphor and a word illusion here. Get across his point. First, it is clear that burial with Christ and death with Christ is an identification with a complete break with the old life for a new life. That's what Paul's saying. We broke away from the old life. We've done away with that and we're going to the new life. And in this process, he uses baptism into his death. Interesting. But it's not the symbolic baptism that we do. And that, uh, I'll stop there, kind of verse 4, but uh, J. Vernon McGee is in here considerably, by the way. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly with Dr. McGee. Yeah. Word for word. Yeah. Wow. He, he has several very good insights, by the way. I'm surprised, uh, well, it didn't surprise me, but it surprised me. I didn't surprise me, And there's plenty of other folks that have written some more historical, not tonight. That's the historical context. It was, it would seem like it was easy for Paul to evangelize. And he's going to be getting killed. And, and not too many, I think, days or months or years to give his luck. But but then you're a slave to one master or another. You have death or life. Your choice. Choose life. Any thoughts or any comments? Any questions? It's marvelous, marvelous. So uh, we are in Christ. I've, uh, I've, we've given our lives to Christ. Or our sins are with Christ or with their own us if we're not forgiven. As Dr. McKee was bringing that out. I don't know if I got it exactly. Um, either we're in Christ, we're not in Christ. You can't be but two different ways. Um, two, two ways. We, we, we believe we're in Christ, if we're not, um, if we're not believers, then we're outside of Christ and our sins are on us to be judged. Right. Yeah, the young man says, um, Hallelujah, I am dead to sin. He says, Dr. McGee, are you dead to sin? He says, No. And then the young guy says, Are you dead to sin? And the guy says, uh, uh, uh. He says, And this is the statement You haven't died to sin, you have died to sin in Christ. That's our position. We have died to sin in Christ. That was his statement to this young man. He uh, had a very good observation. Uh, We're slaves to the Lord Jesus. He's my master right. now. Um, I was a slave to sin before I was saved. But now I'm the Lord Jesus is my master and I'm a slave to Him. I still have the old nature. I always will. But um, if I listen to the Holy Spirit, you'll tell me exactly what you want to do. So it's just powerful. It's exactly that. And then he gave an example of the um, 1800s. This group went to Hawaii. They were um, young, young people. And they went to Hawaii um, evangelizing. 
Now, I mean, he said that was one of the greatest. He said it was amazing how many were one to Christ. He said, and they were, um, they died for, they died for Christ. He said it was, the movement was just, it just took, took, you know, took off the revival. It's amazing. And, and Dr. McGee says it's still being thought about today. He still marvels at how those, they, the bravery of those kids coming in, um, being opposed by the people who didn't believe. But he said it was a phenomenal revival. So he closed uh, Romans 6 with that illustration. Thank you that you are God. Love you. We give you a hug. 